Alright, so this week we begin talking about the 1.5 updates. So I decided that we would do a small little podcast here to talk about the three changes that they released, but more so the bigger picture and to what they absolutely represent. Namely because people read into things and tempering expectations is always something important. Now the article, of course, is going to discuss most of everything that we want to make points of, but... I wanted to do this podcast here to go over those changes, their impact, what led to them, and some of the background processes there, and hopefully give some insight to people as to what to exactly expect in case they just kind of glossed over the article. So let's go over the actual changes that happened there, and we'll go over one by one each of the points that they bring up and the basically the type of changes that you're going to expect here. So the first one that we did is Roderick Cassiel. And he's basically what we considered put into the, I'm going to say minor change category, where he didn't get an overhaul, he didn't really get changed that much, his ability just got smoother to actually play. Uh, What happened in regards to him is that he had order martial training. When this unit makes a melee attack, after attack dice are rolled, the defender becomes vulnerable. That got changed to order mark target, which is the same one that appears on the um, ranger trackers in the Night's Watch which is mark target, start of a friendly turn. One enemy in line of sight long range becomes vulnerable. So this is actually a very minor mechanical change. What this does is it still gives him a means of putting out vulnerable. It just opens up his ability to do so. Now, Roderick as a commander wants to throw down vulnerable to trigger a lot of his effects. He gets a lot of abilities from it, including his secondary effect that he has of exposed opening. When targeting vulnerable enemies, this unit may reroll any misses, noting that it is one of the few abilities that actually can affect melee and ranged attacks. So a common thing is you'll see him get put on like Stark Bowman. Or, you know, any ranged unit, you know, anything like that. So this is the type of change where we didn't really want to modify how the unit or the attachment actually functioned. In this case, we just wanted to kind of smooth out, make it easier to play. Frankly, out of all the Stark commanders, Roderick has some of the most uh, terrifying denial cards in the Stark arsenal. And it's not exactly like we viewed him as a bad commander or unplayable or anything like that. That's the thing is that, you know, we live in a day and age where everyone wants to view things as an extreme and there's definitely a tier list. I mean, that's just the nature of anything competitive that's going to happen. I mean, hell, you've got Smash Brothers and, you know, any type of fighting games where you're going to have, you know, tier lists and things like that. And I extensively play League, Overwatch, those type of things. So, you know, I'm familiar with those concepts and everything. Roderick was by no means um, bad. In fact, I actually feel that his cards are some of the stronger ones, if you know how to use them. But the thing is, he had a very sharp learning curve, and this ability here, which should kind of be the linchpin to bring his playstyle together, was just very clunky in how it operated. So this is the type of... uh, what we're considering like a minor change that you might see across some units here. Um... And this is technically the preferred one that we would like to do, is these little minor tweaks that just makes things a little bit more streamlined, a little bit more accessible to be played. Now, when it comes to these changes, we're specifically targeting things that feel really need the improvement that are not seeing play. So that is one tempered expectation that I really want to get out there because, you know, there are people that are going to read this as like, oh man, they're going to change like 80% of the cards and, you know, everything's going to get looked at. That's not happening, okay? Bottom line, very cut and dry here, that is not happening. Uh, the list of overall units that are affected uh, is pretty slim. I'm not even going to throw a percentage on there because I haven't done that math, but 
you're looking at a handful of attachments, a handful of units here, just things that are, you know, really not seeing play um, for one reason or another. The things that are like, okay, well, this is really good in a certain type of list. This is really good if you do, do this. Those type of things are fine. Um, and you're not going to see like, you know, tweaks across the board here and everything. This is specifically an update to target things that are really like statistically not seeing play or are just kind of clunky. Okay. But if it's in the just okay category, because that's really subjective, then you can assume that it's probably going to stay the same. Uh, also noting the fact that we are still factoring in units with releases that are upcoming that people just haven't seen. And I know we talk about this a lot that, you know, the dev and design cycle is really, really far in advance, and it is. But the thing is, the reason any of these changes here are happening to begin with is as much playtest data as you can gather during the actual development cycle and all that, it's never going to be anything compared to when things actually get out in the wild. I believe it's a, well, I don't believe, I know it's a quote from Riot Games when it comes to actually League of Legends. You know, they have an entire division of their company devoted to just playtesting um, every single update. And they have stated several times that they gather more data in the first 48 hours of a live update to their game than they do over the entire of that cycle. So, you know, it's always one of those tricky things because I still remember back that when we were designing initial stuff, there were things that I considered kind of yellow flags that I was worried about, you know, coming up to the release of the actual game. That I was like, man, you know, I just don't know about this. You know, I know we have our data. We've got our numbers crunch. We've got months and months and months leading up to, you know, technically a couple of years worth of play test and everything. But you always have that second guess bit. And then the game is actually comes out and the things that you thought were going to be problematic, no one cares about. And these little things that you were like, okay, that's fine, but we are aware of, that's a thing that everyone just kind of explodes over. And it's always tricky because there's a perception of, oh, I heard this was really strong. I heard that this is problematic versus the reality of that situation. And, you know, I'm not going to say anything negative of the community there or whatnot, because frankly, I think we have a very good community. But this is just kind of a universal thing, looking at any type of competitive or tiered game that is released. People have these reactions to things, and then they actually will go and put them on paper, and, you know, they'll have their impressions, and then you'll actually see something played out, and, oh, this is how it's going to be. And, you know, that's always the thing, is that you have to, as a designer and a developer and someone who has a focus on balancing things, you have to take things into consideration. Is the is something actually too strong? Is the perception of it too strong? And which one of those is the balancing factor? Because if some, if people, you know, you can sit there and listen to everyone go, oh man, the sky is red, the sky is red, the sky is red. It doesn't matter how many people say it, the sky is blue. That's just the facts of it. Now, you know, I've talked before that we have our data and our internal, you know, things that we use and also our accumulated data from external sources that, you know, we weigh against things. That is the primary thing that we do for balance you know, is one of the most dangerous things in the world, which no professional should really be doing, to just listen to, you know, whoever's the loudest. Now, that brings us into the next point, though, uh, perception. Uh, that is actually something which is going to sound contradictory to what I just said, but that is something to take into consideration as well, because there's an opposite extreme, and that is if something 
does not appear strong enough and people have to basically work really hard to make it work that's kind of a problem as well because you want things to be intuitive you want things to be streamlined and you want things to be accessible there's a fine balance for that when it comes to okay is this going to be too good or is this going to just have a low to mid-range kind of learning curve to it i'm going to go back to talk about like league of legends for a moment um just to give an analogy here one of my favorite champions is Azir. I'm not going to bore anyone who doesn't know about League of Legends with the specifics, but he is one of the most frustrating champions from a balanced perspective, and Riot has said this many times, because in the hands of a capable player that knows what they are doing, that can fully master him on the proper team that can support him, he will dominate because of the abilities and the skill set that they've given him. But in the hands of an average player that doesn't have like the super competitive focus, he's kind of crap. <laughs> um, also my favorite champion in the game and the one I almost play exclusively so they have a very very hard time balancing him because if they make him too good he starts dominating like crazy in competitive play but if they don't keep him to a, if they nerf him to the point where it's like he's a little balanced then the average player has an insanely hard time using him and he's just not taken because it requires so much investment and setup for results you can probably get elsewhere with you know uh, less effort so that's something to always take in consideration as well. And I know I'm kind of droning on about this, but that comes back to Roderick. Roderick in the hands of a player that really knows how to use him, I feel can be incredibly oppressive. But he also was very tricky to use because you really had to know how to use him. Now with this change, this makes him more accessible and just kind of easier for the, I'm not going to say casual because that sounds a little insulting, but I don't mean it like that, for, well, the casual player to use. Now, with this change, of course, we tested it extensively with people that, you know, are testers who were trying out there to, like, let's just make a stomping list here and try to just beat the hell out of people of Roderick and see how exploitable he is. You know, we wanted to make sure that he didn't just all of a sudden jump to, like, the top tier. This was a nice little intermediate change here that we really feel like kind of put him in a good spot. And this is the exact type of change that we really wanted to see with a lot of units, is if we could just change it in the most minor way possible, but just bring it up to like that kind of snuff. And there's a lot of units in this game. I'm very proud to say that there was very few things that were just like, there's nothing unplayable. It was just, there were better options. And perfect balance is never going to be something that you can accomplish, but we want to get as close to it as we can, which kind of wraps us into our next one we're going to talk about, which is the Tully Sworn Shields. This one right here had a lot of back and forth debate uh, internally when we were re-evaluating these guys because there's no doubt these guys are really strong. And a lot of armies would pay absolutely just to have these guys, and they would be fine. But this also goes into factor in the fact that these guys are in Starks, okay? They're not in Lannisters, they're not in Neutrals, not in Baratheons, they're in Starks. So you have to factor that. And that's something a lot of people do as well, as they do a lot of cross-faction comparisons. And while there is some merit to that, there are so many other variables that have to be taken into consideration. You know, you have to factor in what NCUs are available to that faction, what tactics cards are available to that faction, what other effects are going to stack on top of there to alter how that unit plays. And, you know, you can't do that across, you know, factions because you don't have those options. One of the examples is uh, like Lannisters, for example. They, if they had access to some of the Stark um, combat units, then it really wouldn't be a big deal. Like they have mountainsmen who are a very strong melee unit, but they only have so many tools in their army that support them. 
Meanwhile, if you took that same unit and maybe stuck it in Starks or Night's Watch, for example, then you would open up a just floodgate of things that could co suddenly combo with them, and suddenly they become a lot more uh, economical for their points. And you know those are things that you have to balance as well. Now, the Tully Sworn Shields, they're just originally were designed to just kind of be a raw stat dump. You know, they've got good morale, they've got good defense, they've got decent attack. They just don't have any special abilities to trigger off of that, which is something that you know could potentially be changed by attachments. You know, for example, like the latest like Stormcrow um, Lieutenant can give them plus one attack die and Sundering. That's universally good on them. Problem is, is that it requires the Wealth Zone, which Starks and universally don't want to go after. So therefore, it kind of balances itself out. Now the issue with these guys is that they were coming in at 7 points for a defensive unit in an army that doesn't really favor defense. But at the same time, um, you know, how do you go about balancing that? So the options were we keep them at 7 points, and we change their stats around, or we give them some other abilities. But the thing is, is that they're already really, really tanky. So upping that, that's not a good option, because they're already a 3+, they already block D3 hits whenever they're attacked, and then if they combo well with the natural defensive guy in the army of the Blackfish, or hell, even like Roderick in his new form, then you've got a bit of a problem here, because you can't really up their defensive capabilities any. If you up their offensive capabilities at any point, now they're directly competing with the guys who are supposed to be dedicated offense for that same point slot, which is the Umber Great Axes and the Umber Berserkers. Those are supposed to be your two offensive, but not really defensive options. So you have them in a weird spot there. The option here is we dropped them a point. Now again, like I said, in a lot of armies, these guys at six points would just be a fantastic take-all option. Um, and there are, there are comparative ones, like the Bolton Blackguard and you know some other things in other armies I'm not going to get into. But the thing is, again, these guys are in Starks. Um, these are a slower defensive unit, which yes, Stark has means of mitigating the slow aspect of it. But Starks really want to be on the offense. So by playing into the defense, they, you're kind of going against some of the natural Stark um, synergies that you're going to have, unless you're building specific armies, which go figure House Tully is your defensive one. But the point is, is that over the general you know, look of these Starks, you don't value defense as much. So therefore, these guys, you know, that has to be factored into their point cost. So in this case, rather than keeping them at seven points and either adding more defense to an already defensive unit with the potential to make it so they were actually unkillable, or upping their offense to make them compete with similar options, then at this point it became the option of, okay, we changed their points around. Now we could have moved them up, and then we could justify, you know, okay, you guys will have just the best of both worlds, but you're going to be really expensive. The thing is, is that Starks already have a lot of expensive things, uh, attachments and units, and they're really kind of missing the mid-range guys uh, for now. But so, therefore, we decided to just pull them back a little bit, and, you know, that was what we did. Now, when we dropped down to six, we had to look at their stats and go, okay, is there anything here that we really need to change to warrant just the point reduction? Because, you know, doing that in a vacuum, you can potentially run into some issues. Now, after some testing and evaluating things over, we decided that we didn't really need to change things, and a lot of that heavily relied on the fact that when looking at the synergies that they had with NCU's attachments, tactics cards, and everything, they really felt okay at six points. But again, that's specifically for them being in a Stark army. If they're in another army, then we might have to reevaluate things. But so, that's the general mindset there. Points changes of just like shifting something up and down, 
that is something that we don't really do lightly because it seldom works out that that's the only thing you can do and have something just kind of work. Um, and, you know, that's the thing is a lot of people naturally will look at that and go like, oh, well, if you just drop a unit one point, then, yeah, it'll be great. And that's kind of the point is that if you drop it by one point, it might be too good at that point bracket because you have to evaluate not only its stats, but the fact that you're dropping it a point, which means that now you have to factor in every single one point attachment that can be added to that unit and then compare it to its old point cost. So, you know, a lot of people will look at it and go like, oh, that's an easy answer. But that can really mess up your balance if you're just if that's your solution for things so the points you know change when it's just the number shift that's a very a rare thing that works out and it also can mess up the internal faction balance of this is how many mid-range point units you have this is how many expensive point units we have and again i really hate going back to this but some of that is going to be counterbalanced by things that we know are coming out uh, this is just something else I want to minorly say right here as well. I've said this several times in the past, and we've said this at conventions and everything, but there's some, for some reason, there's some concept, uh, preconception, or sorry, misconception out there that people go like, oh, well, you know, every faction is only getting 10 units, and then that's it. I don't know where that stemmed from. I think it's because everyone kind of like saw that the releases capped out at like 10 because that was the second hero box. That doesn't mean that's an end cap guys that means that's in that cycle that's the current last number that was used uh so i don't know why people are reading into like factions being done the thing is now we've said this several times we want to avoid faction bloat which is just releasing new unit after new unit after new unit just for the sake of doing that because that's been kind of the death knell of some other games is that eventually factions just become palette swaps of each other but it's definitely not a thing of like oh these guys are done like i, I don't know where you would draw that conclusion from based on what we've said but i'm just saying that here now like you know uh it's not like we're gonna keep flooding out units for every single faction but thinking that a faction is ever just done that's it they're never gonna see anything else that's kind of crazy sorry side tangent there and devote things for that now last type of change here champion of the faith this is an example of a guy who just received a complete overhaul in what he did and this is kind of one of those things that, like there was really no other option than to kind of completely overhaul him. reason I say that is because he only had one ability. <laughs> His old order was a stand resolute. When this unit passes a morale test, all enemies engaged with this unit become vulnerable. We have changed that to unwavering conviction, which is just a regular ability, not an order. When this unit activates, it may make a morale test. On a success, it may restore up to two wounds. On a failure, it restores one wound instead. This is the type of change that is, you're going to see this with some attachments. Um, and actually, let me just think in my head right quick. You're not going to see it on too many attachments, because anything that got looked at probably had multiple abilities. I will say this is going in right now. I guess spoilers if you want to just, you know, okay, know something that's coming out, you know, in articles over the next few weeks, months, whatever, is that. A lot of the things that are being evaluated when it comes to attachments are usually the more expensive ones. And that is just because, you know, again, a lot of these are going to be ones that are from the initial wave of the game. And what we came to find out uh, after the game has been out for like 18 months and everything is there is a certain threshold of what is okay for an attachment point cost to ratio to power. 
And really, it's a lot of like when you one to two points is about your range for attachments. When you start getting over that, that's when attachment really has to be something special or really needs to be evaluated to what it does. A good example of that was for uh, the mountain, uh, Lord Tywin's mad dog. So he was a three point attachment. We with the original effect, he had a drawback and he was pretty strong, but he was still three points. Now, had we kept him with his original effect that he had and lowered him to two points, that would have probably been fine. But we really wanted to keep him at a three-point, just kind of monster guy. Uh, and that kind of goes into a design philosophy thing. you got your one-point attachments, which are supposed to be like minor upgrades to the units. You have your two-point attachments, which are supposed to be a bigger, heavier investment. But the initial logic was when you were when we were designing things is that you're usually going to have... You know, well, you only have one attachment per unit. Usually an attachment is going to confer one extra ability to the unit. When you started getting into those two or three point cost ratios, then they needed to be giving multiple abilities to the unit. But in turn, that was actually part of our little algorithm and point system is that you are paying for the fact that you're giving multiple abilities to the unit. So if you're giving a unit two abilities, that's kind of... <coughs> oh, sorry guys. That is kind of a, a game-changing thing because attachments usually confer one ability. So you're doubling up on a benefit. So that was usually factored into being uh, going into point cost. I know some people look at like, oh, affiliation factors into the point cost as well. And it does minorly, but that's really more an internal balancing thing about like, okay, how is this unit going to then affect with its tactics cards? But if you had two abilities usually you were going to pay a little extra premium there for the fact that it gave you two abilities. Now, as the game came out and we received playtest data and stuff from like tournament results and just, you know, all the sources that we gather things from, we saw a trend that uh, basically, yes, that, you know, that was still true, but all that the kind of resulted from that is that players then didn't want to pay the points for those abilities. They didn't view it as worth it. And then when you look at army construction data and things like that, it kind of supported that as well, that once you hit a certain threshold of attachment points, you are losing effectiveness because at that point you could have just taken like another combat unit and they would have multiple abilities, they would be able to interact with things on the battlefield, so forth and so forth. So really we found the threshold for that was really around two points. When you get over that, something has to be special about that attachment it's got to be kind of scary it's got to be worth three points and a lot of the early release stuff you know if you look at it's not a matter of like power creep that's the term i want to avoid um it's just a matter of effectiveness those guys were valued higher given their uh with their potential impact than their actual impact once things came out so that's something that came up was that you know okay attachments you know, points, balancing, things like that. I've kind of gotten sidetracked again from my original point here talking about this, but it's still relevant. So with attachments, if they only have one ability and you're going to change that ability, by definition, you're kind of redefining how that guy plays. Now, in the case of the Champion of the Faith, it was a matter of you had this ability here that triggered on a morale test, which this guy was released during the initial Kickstarter. You know, the point we already knew about the Warrior Sons, our new poor fellows and all that stuff were going to eventually come out. So he was supposed to synergize with them. The thing is, is that the way he did it is that he's making all enemies vulnerable, which is nice because he synergizes with the morale test that those units already take, but it's in a Lannister army. 
the fact that he makes units vulnerable is not really doing so much for them. Because, yeah, okay, it's a source of vulnerable that they didn't have, but so what? They, they really can't do anything with it compared to other armies. And this is getting back to the point that I was making about looking at things internally in the faction. So, stand resolute. When this unit passes a morale test, all enemies engaged in this unit become vulnerable. That would be a fantastic ability for showing up in Baratheons and Starks. Not to say it won't, or it is, or it will, or anything like that, but that ability would be valued much, much higher in either of those armies than a Lannister army. So while you have a unit here that is good in one army, it's not really doing a whole lot in the army that it's actually built into. So this ability had to be changed. We could have modified the ability in some way or whatnot, but the thing is, is that it exists elsewhere. So therefore, you know, we had changed the ability route. So we took a look at this guy and go like, okay, what are the themes of the Lannister army? Their denial and their sustain and defense, minorly. But really the defense is kind of the part of the sustain thing. So how do we play around with that that makes him a unique, compare, uh, unique option compared to the other attachments? Well, in this case, you know, we do to the wounds, rest, uh, the restoration aspect of them. This is tying into the Lannister's themes of defense and kind of being the kind of a grindy army. Not to the point of Baratheons, but definitely a sustained army, but without just giving you extra defense, because they've already got means of doing that. So this is going to give you extra defense in the form of sustain via getting wounds back. And we knew we wanted this to play into the morale aspect of the uh, faith militant as well, but we didn't want to be limited to just those options. And that was something that the old champion was also kind of limited, because Lannisters do not have good morale, nor should they. So you have this attachment that is good in a very niche role in the army, and even then, he's not contributing the most he could. With this new rework here, we have Unwavering Conviction, which is when this unit activates, it may make a morale test on a success and may restore to two wounds, but on a failure, it still restores one wound. So you have these Lannister guys who are just kind of okay at morale. This is still going to give them one wound back every time they activate for a point. That's assuming they'd fail every single test. If they do pass the test, though, you're going to get back half a rank, two wounds, which is not insignificant. Then you factor this guy in with the guys he's supposed to have synergy with, the warrior's sons and the poor fellows, who have outstanding morale, which means that they're going to be succeeding on that test most of the time. In addition to that, they have built-in abilities that are going to trigger off of gaining, uh, sorry, passing morale tests. So this guy's going to naturally synergize really well with those. Then you look at the commander options. You have the High Sparrow, who gives the, the unit that he's influencing plus two to morale test, thus upping their ability to pass this, upping their ability to get those wounds back. And you have these synergies that now all of a sudden are exploding out that you previously didn't have, that now can go across the entire army. So you have this option here where you're like, okay, I can take this guy in Faith Militant because, yeah, he really wants to synergize with that. But what's he doing for everyone else? Okay, well, I've got a commander that now I can splash other units into, and I can make him more effective. But even if I don't, I can still stick him in a unit like Halberdiers, who getting one wound back means they might get a, a rank back. And for them, that's super important because they only have a drop-off at the very last bit of combat. Okay, that's really good. And then you, I can look at my other options here, like, okay, um, you know, what other units could he potentially go into? Is he going to be the best in, like, you know, 
every situation? No, but no attachment should. It should be all about making things viable and different options based on your builds. If a guy synergizes better of a couple commanders, you know, versus others, that's kind of how these things go. You know, there should be no option that is just universally good. And a lot of the overarching kind of changes that you'll see in 1.5 are kind of pushing the game in that in in that direction. There are some core mechanic changes that we looked at that were uh, that are going to be modified. Which, again, we have specific articles to talk about those, and I'll release some supplementary podcasts to speak on them. But this is really one here that I want to go over talking about when it comes to the attachments and the units and the type of changes that you can expect. So I'm just going to spend the last little bit here just kind of recapping the three items we talked about and really expectations to moving forward. So the very first type of change and the one we would prefer is if we just had to very minorly tweak something to how it functioned. Basically keep its initial role that it had, keep its initial kind of play style, but just make it a little smoother or just easier to make it work. Okay, and that's going to be mainly when it comes to attachments and also units. Units, if they got changed, it's really usually going to be like numbers changes because that's kind of where, you know, you get a lot of those changes that happen in here. Uh, Next one is going to be points adjustments. Those across units are going to be very rare without anything else happening to them. And even then, most units did not get a points change. They They just had their abilities modified or their stats modified in some way, shape, or form. In fact, off the top of my head, I think there's only like three, maybe four units across all factions that actually received a point shift. And it might not even be that many, come to think of it. But again, anyway, the reason for that is because most units are kind of, they their position in their points bracket, specifically for faction balance when it comes to, you know, where their role is in there. So changing those points, that usually has to lead to other ripple effects that we just don't want to do. So if it's just a raw points change, it's going to be very rare. The last one is going to be complete overhauls of things. And I can tell you that no units received any type of complete overhaul. This is mainly limited to attachments. And that's specifically going to be any attachments that only had like one ability, maybe two. I even don't want to go so far as to say even that many because the champion definitely received what I would consider the biggest overhaul into how he functioned. And even then, that's not very extreme. Most things, like I can't think of a single other attachment that just got raw reworked. I mean, the last one that technically, I guess, had that happen would be the Umber Champion. And that was back in May when we did that first batch of adjustments. But otherwise, you know, the play style of things is going to mainly stay the same as it was, you know. Um, There's nothing that just got radically like 180, like, oh my god, this is how this guy functions now. At least I don't think so. But if I can't think of it off the top of my head, that means it probably doesn't exist. So... That's going to wrap this up, talking about this. I'm going to try to release one of these uh, little chat podcasts here a couple days after we release any type of um, of the article posts, which we're going to try to get more frequent, leading up to the 1.5 release, which should be coming out. Uh, you know, I'm not going to give a firm date on that or anything, but we're hoping to launch that sooner rather than later um, because it's been prepped and done. We've been working on that for a long time. And we were just basically finalizing everything to making sure it was all good and ready. So that's going to wrap that up. And hopefully you guys have found this informative. You can join me next time. And we will talk about whatever topic is then. Take care.